Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm here with my co-host, Medea Ocher, Hi, managing Kate. editor, and Eric Newman, Hi, Kate. gender and sexuality editor for LARB. And we're going to listen to some interviews that we did live at the LA Times Festival of Books. Yeah, we did them April 20... April 22nd and 23rd. Yeah. Yes, and we were in our booth. It was really hot. Outside. I was not prepared for that. Didn't even bring a hat. Oh, right. You thought uh, it was inside. Didn't bring a hat. Very sprawling affair there all over the USC campus. And we spoke with Garth Greenwell, who is a fiction writer and a poet and the author of a novel called What Belongs to You. Marcy Dermansky, who is the author of a new book, a novel called The Red Car. And then Dana Spiota, who is an author of many novels, and her new book is called Innocence and Others, and it's also a novel. It was really hot, but it was also fun. These, great conversation. They were great, and these people were all sports. Well, Garth either. came prepared. He had a fan. Right. Oh, yeah, He that had was a beautiful amazing. fan, yeah. and he was just like a, a guest at a Louisiana wedding. <laughs> he was, <laughs> well he was said, fine. Yeah. And, he, and he was... None the sharper for being so overheated. So let's get to it. Let's listen to it. We're here live at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, and we are talking to Garth Greenwell. Garth Greenwell is a novelist, a poet, and a literary critic. He's the author of the novella Miko and the novel What Belongs to You, which was published by Ferris Stratton Giroux in 2016, was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, and the LA Times Book Prize, among others. His short fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, A Public Space, Story Quarterly, and Vice, and he is based in Iowa City. Garth, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So are you here promoting, still, or in you know, with What Belongs to You? I am here with What Belongs to You. The The prize ceremony was last night. Okay. Um, and I am kind of on the tail. You know, it's this interesting time because the book has been out now for over a year. And I'm, you know, it's been amazing to get to travel and talk about it, but I feel ready to stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, um, yeah. And, to, and it's this, this, I was just talking about this with another first book novelist, Idra Novi, and we were talking about, right, how do you do that? How do you, like, close the door in order to turn to a new project? Because it is kind of, she was saying, it's like, it's like living next to your ex. It's like, you know, it's like there's this yeah. sort of thing that you can't quite turn your back on. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I had not realized that would be an, an issue, but it kind of is. Is there something um, that you turn to to make it more exciting or that you've that you realize renews your interest or is or does it feel like I just want to move on? Well, you know, it way. has it has been interesting, like conversations around the paperbacks. The paperback came out in December and um, it is amazing how much and I think this is true of just any book, but how much a conversation about a book feels different in the world after the election. You know, it is sort of like every, like just any kind of cultural conversation feels very different. And a book that's about being abroad, that's about sexual minorities, um, like that just, it feels like the sort of cultural context has shifted and so therefore the conversation itself has shifted too. So that's true. I mean, it's not as though it feels 
like the same conversation. Okay. No. So tell, and tell us, just for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, a little bit about the plot. So the book is, is, is about a relationship between an American high school teacher living and working in Sofia, Bulgaria, and a younger Bulgarian man named Mikko, whom he meets in the public toilets beneath the National Palace of Culture in Sofia, and whom he pays for sex. And sort of the arc of the novel is about how a relationship that at first seems kind of easy and clear, kind of like a, a sort of easy transaction becomes, because it's a face-to-face encounter between two human beings, becomes kind of very humanly messy. Um, and then the, so that's sort of the, the book's in three parts, and that's the first and third part. And then the middle section is this narrative that's kind of disconnected from that, which is about the narrator's childhood growing up in Kentucky in the early 90s. And so the, you know, the, the thing that I didn't realize as I, was, as I was writing the book, but I've only realized as a part of conversations about the book, is that, I mean, really, I think the reason I had to write the book is because I was living in Bulgaria, and I kept having this sort of vertiginous, uncanny experience in this very foreign place of a kind of homecoming. Of, of mm. find, I found myself thinking about Kentucky more than I had in decades and sort of being in situations that constantly reminded me of this world that I had run away from. Yeah. And I think that does have to do with the fact that sort of for, a queer, for queer people... Or, or as a queer person, sort of Bulgaria in the early 2010s felt very much like Kentucky in the early 1990s. And in, in what way? I mean, well, I mean, I feel like so. I mean, two experiences. I mean, the first experience of this was very early in my time in Sofia when I found by accident this this real place or the bathrooms beneath the National National Palace of Culture, which is kind of I would learn Sofia's most notorious sort of gay male cruising place. And I had this, like, really bizarre experience of sort of, you know, above ground, I could barely speak the language. I was constantly making kind of cultural faux pas. I just, I fundamentally didn't understand most of what was happening around me. And then I descended into this place where I was entirely fluent because the sort of nonverbal codes, that language of cruising, was exactly the same in Bulgaria as it had been in the parks of Louisville in the early 1990s. And then the other piece was as a high school teacher, because I was I was the only openly gay member of my school community. All of my students were Bulgarian. And my students who thought they might be or who knew that they were, were queer would come and talk to me. And for all of the differences between, you know, Bulgaria in 2010 and Kentucky in the early 90s, I felt like as they were telling me their stories, they were telling me my own story. Wow. And so that, I mean, it was this weird way because I... I there's this weird thing because I think that, you know, going to Bulgaria was kind of the end of a long process of running away from my childhood. And what happened was that it was in Bulgaria where I found myself sort of forced to confront um, that, you know, the very things I was trying to run away from. Wow. Well, that's always, I mean, isn't this always true with like queer life, right? That there is this kind of proleptic function where you're always shuttling between like a past in which you experience something and a present in which you may have got over it right so this is like the it gets better but there's still a part of that past that is clinging to you right and yeah. that is left unresolved unlike you absolutely know. well and I, I mean I think that that's um, I mean that's kind of one of the deep preoccupations of, of the book is sort of thinking about ways in which I mean my narrator shares with me a condition of being a 
a sort of out and proud gay man mm -hmm. who has been steeped in the language of, ad of, of advocacy and activism for two decades, who has rejected the lessons he was taught about himself as a child, who knows that those lessons are bankrupt. Sure. And yet, who will never get to be someone who was not shaped by those lessons. Exactly, yes. And so, you know, yeah. that condition, which does seem to me kind of an interesting moment in queer subjectivity, if we can talk about it that way, of sort of being shaped by a shame you have rejected and kind of genuinely rejected. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of, that is an interesting relationship to shame. And it's a different, I mean, shame is kind of at the heart of this book as shame has been at the heart of much of queer literature. Sure. But you know, like the shame that my narrator is grappling with and meditating on is not the same shame that like James Baldwin's David in Giovanni's room is feeling. Mm. You know, David is sort of desperate to try to understand what made him gay, how he could not be gay, sort of forcing himself to have sex with women to not be gay. He's just desperate not to be gay. My narrator feels none of that. You know, yeah. that's not, that has nothing to do with my narrator's sense of his own life but he is still kind of fundamentally marked in this way that it seems to me is true, I think, of a lot of queer people in these very privileged parts of the world where conditions for queer people have improved drastically over the last couple of decades. But, you know, if we allow this kind of, you know, this public conversation, this life-giving and necessary conversation that has been informed by a discourse of pride, if we allow that to silence an acknowledgement of sort of this... You know, the fact that even in these very privileged parts of the world, you know, queer people are still fighting for their lives every day. Yeah. And are still exposed to narratives of shame. And are still, and, and you know, that, that this is something we still carry around. If we allow ourselves, if we allow a kind of discourse of pride to keep us from being able to talk about that, I mean, I think that's a really dangerous situation, you know, to not be able to address the sort of continuing griefs and wounds that even queer people who are living in very safe places carry around, much less, you know, queer people almost everywhere right. in the world yeah. who are facing explicit violence and discrimination every day. Yeah, you know, I was also wondering, you know, a lot of what the book is about is about being in relation with another person and the, and the messiness of relation. And there's a very particular kind of the cruising and then the transactional, you know, monetary sexual relationship. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how, like, in this moment that we're in right now, you're thinking about relation, like how we relate to others. Well, and, and I mean, and this is a way in which, you know, I mean, the book and one of the things, one of the sort of interesting conversations I've gotten to have over the last year is thinking about, you know, this book as a queer book and mm. as a book that's written by a queer writer and that's written for queer people in the sense that the book is not interested in sort of taking minority lives and trying to translate the value of those lives into a kind of value that would be that would be legible by a or majority universal, culture or right? universal. Yeah. And yet, you know, I do believe in the universal. I just think the way that we talk about the universal is dangerous because we talk about it in a way that that pretends that there is a kind of human experience that is unmarked by particulars of history and class. And there's not. And if we talk as though there is a human experience that's unmarked by sexuality or race mm -hmm. or class, then what, what we allow is just for whatever the default position in a particular cultural moment is, like white, straight, and male, we allow that to pretend to be universal. That's sure. a really dangerous sense of yeah. universal. But I do believe 
And the reason I think, you know, literature is something worth dedicating one's life to, I mean, I do believe that by, not by effacing the particular, but by rooting into the particular, I do think literature reaches these things that are true, that are true are truths held in common by human beings. Mm, and mm. one of those is, I mean, thinking about relation, I mean, you know, the kind of the kind of central dilemma for my narrator is that very human dilemma of the fact that we are locked into our own consciousnesses and we have no access to another human being's consciousness. Sure. Which means we can never know for certain if we are in the same story with another person. And that's as true for... You know, I mean, that's true for my narrator and this man he meets cruising in a bathroom and whom he pays for sex. I think that's also true of two people who have been married for 30 years. Yeah. Totally. That you can never be sure of sort of, of share. And that's, I mean, on one hand, that's sort of the wonder of the enduring and infinite mystery of another human right. being. Yeah. And on the other hand, that's the deep uncertainty of sort of never being sure that this story, that this, that a kind of fundamental story of your life is a shared one, you know, or a kind of a kind of mutually communicable one. So, I mean, that is, I think that is a universal human dilemma. Um, that is sort of also the dilemma of these two particular queer people in a very particular sort of moment. You mentioned before um, we went on air that you were for your next project, um, maybe going to travel back to Kentucky and and stay there for a little while. Um, is that a part of, is traveling back, I mean, that's where you're from, yeah. that's where your family yeah. partly is now, um, is traveling back a part of that investigation of the kind of unshareability of human experience, right? Because the, we think of family as maybe the one unit with which we can relate, right? right? And that like, we have been raised in the same household and so there is some kind of shared existence. Yeah, it's like but home base. Yeah. It's like home base, right. But often those people end up being completely yeah. not people that you can share, you actually share any experience yeah. with, you know, and that reality for them is quite different, remarkably so sometimes. Um, but is that is going back to Kentucky a part of sort of looking into yeah, that kind of question? I think it is. It's trying to sort of recover or recuperate you know, from Kentucky, sort of something usable about that past. Because as I say, I mean, I did, like, growing up queer in Kentucky in the early 90s was really not great. You know, I mean, it was yeah. really an unsafe environment. Um, and I did feel like I had to sort of save myself from it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when I went back this last year for the first time in over a decade, I was amazed. I mean, I had such, it was such an overwhelming experience. And, I, you know, I was not surprised by the kind of intensely painful or negative things I felt in Kentucky, but I was surprised by the intensely positive and also intensely kind of ambivalent feelings I had and my sense of a kind of extraordinary richness in that place and a sense that there is, because I think part of that rejection of that place was a feeling that, like, I knew it. I knew it through and through. I knew what Kentucky was. I knew what Kentucky meant. And when I went back this this last year, I thought, oh, no, absolutely. This, actually, this place is intensely mysterious to me, and there's so much I don't understand. And that is, I mean, I think that's the fundamental attitude you have to have about something to write about it, is this feeling that it is sort of mysterious. And, I mean, you know, the thing that is kind of endlessly inspiring to me about queer culture is the way that queer culture and queer art, you know, 
takes this sort of pain of stigma and makes it something useful and makes it a site for resistance, a site for beauty. I mean, this is really kind of the history of queer yeah. aesthetics is this. It's taking a stigma and turning it into a style, turning it into a, a site of resistance and a site for the production of beauty. And that, you know, we don't get to choose we don't get to choose the lessons we're taught, those first lessons we're taught about ourselves. We don't get to choose them. I don't think we get to choose to unlearn them. We do get to choose what we do with them. You know, we don't get to, you know, that, that question, I mean, the title of my book is What Belongs to You, and that's one of the meanings of that is sort of can, is there something that kind of ineluctably belongs to us from our past that we can never set Aside, And I guess I think the answer to that is yes. You know, we don't get to start anew. We don't get to wipe the slate clean. But then there is that question of, okay, so this belongs to me, but then what can I do with it? How can I make it a sort of site of the production of something? And so the idea of going back to Kentucky and trying to write this book, you know, trying to make something out of the mess of that past. Yeah, I mean, I think it is that. I think it is sort of trying to understand how much of that past is a story I've told myself that is a partial and incomplete story. So you haven't started writing this project yet, or you were? There are notes, there okay. are like fragmentary okay. notes, but okay. I have to go back and like live there, I think, to sort of understand the shape of the thing. Right, yeah. okay, so we'll, we'll be looking forward to maybe a couple book festivals from now having you, <laughs> having you back. Fingers crossed. Oh, okay, we'll see. Crossed. Well, Garth Greenwell, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure, was thanks wonderful. so much for having me. Garth Greenwell's book is What Belongs to You. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. That was Garth Greenwell, author of What Belongs to You, which is a novel that came out in 2016. Now we're going to listen to our interview with Marcy Demansky. This is Kate Wolf from the Los Angeles Review of Books, and we're here live at the LA Times Festival of Books, and we're speaking with Marcy Demansky. Marcy Demansky is the author of the critically acclaimed novels The Red Car, which is out recently, yes. um, Bad Marie and Twins, and her short fiction has been widely published and anthologized, appearing in places like McSqueenie's, Guernica, the Indiana Review, and elsewhere, and she lives in New Jersey. I do. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So tell us about uh, your new book, The Red Car. My new book, The Red Car. It's a book I decided it was inspired by one of my favorite writers, who's Haruki Murakami. Uh -huh. And I, I started this out as my own personal writing exercise, where I thought, what if I tried to write a book that was like a Murakami novel, but it was set in America, and the female was protagonist. The protagonist was female, and otherwise she was an ordinary character who's actually extraordinary, and very surreal things happened to her. So... It just turned out, I just wanted to see what would happen. I took a structure from his book and I started writing. And then it became very much my own book using his themes. It was really fun to do. So how long a process was it to write this novel? It was so fast. This novel only took me about six months to write. No way. From beginning to end, wow. yeah. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I had some issues I wanted to work through in this book. Okay. So yeah, it was like a really cathartic book to write. Like I, I got to take somebody else's thing that was so outside of myself and then make a really, really personal document. So it was kind of interesting. What is about Murakami's work in particular that spoke to you and, and sort of inspired this project? I don't know. He, sometimes I feel so surprised that I love this writer so much because he mainly <laughs> writes about men and characters that fall in wells and little people. But I think that his work is so integrated in like the day-to-day -day and people cooking spaghetti 
And That's exactly what I was going to say, yeah. the cat's spaghetti and the jazz clubs. The cat's spaghetti and the jazz clubs. Yeah. I mean, I just read for you guys. I just read his new short yes, story collection, and it's cat's spaghettis <laughs> and jazz clubs. And I, I actually love how familiar his work is in that sense. And I love that he repeats himself. And, and in fact, while I was writing this book, I put sea lions in this novel. And there were sea lions in my second novel, Bad Marie. And I thought, can I really put sea lions in two novels in a row? And I decided because Murakami can do it, then so can I. So he gave me a lot of permission in a way, not to be lazy, but to just really write about what interests me. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, are you a fan of sea lions? I love sea lions. <laughs> I, was, I mean, that's such a joke, but I just went to San Francisco where I used to live out of college. And a lot of this book is set in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but on Pier 39 in San Francisco, it's just taken over by the sea yeah. lions. And there used to be a lot more, but there's still so many, and I just love them. Aww. And so, yeah, I went and I visited them. So, and were you reading a lot of Murakami as you were writing the book? I went back and I reread some work. And, and yeah, I had to decide, because he writes a lot of 800-page novels and 1,000-page yes. novels, and my book is only 200 pages, so... I picked a novel, it's called The Wild Sheep Chase, just because it's relatively short. And I took, that's not even my favorite book, but I, I borrowed the structure from it because I didn't want to write a 700-page mm-hmm. book. I love that novel. It's and really it's the good. trilogy, the Sheep Man trilogy. Oh, Dance Dance right? Dance. Dance Dance, Dance, Dance was my, my first favorite. and favorite yeah, Murakami novel. Me too. <laughs> and so tell us about writing a novel in six months. Yes. Uh, what kind of schedule does that necessitate? You know, it was interesting. It's a short book and I edit novels. That's my job. So I have Ah. clients and it's this funny thing where even though this is my third book, I wasn't wasn't getting paid to write it and I had clients and I only had the hours that my daughter was in school, but the writing was going really well. So I'd be like, oh, client, um, that book I was going to get back to you next week, it's going to take me two weeks. And I started Mm. just blowing off my paid work a little bit because it felt like it was going really well. Mm, but some, sometimes what I can write in like two to three hours is like such a productive day that I don't need mm. to have an eight-hour writing day the way some people do. Right. So I didn't really, I wasn't even obsessively writing for six months. It was just everything that I wrote, I ended up keeping. Came out. I, I didn't wow. delete That's very great. much. That's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference for you? I mean, obviously editing your own work and editing someone else's work is yeah. a different part of the brain in a way or some but do you find a difference with that it's a different part of the brain um because i just i don't want to ever put my voice into somebody else's work so i'm really careful and like sometimes i'll get an idea and i'll be like wait a second this isn't my book this is the writer's book so i'm really always trying to read the brain of who i'm working with Mm -hmm. to see how they can change it that fits into their mindset Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah right and i also just feel like that's my besides teaching which so many writers do and and i just haven't wanted to get immersed in that world like writing is my marketable skill so I help people with writing so it makes sense that does make sense (laughs) um will you tell our listeners because there Mm -hmm. is and you mentioned this briefly but there is a surreal conceit to the Mm -hmm. red car yeah involving that red car right um would you just quickly sort of give us the flip side of that sort of day-to-day realist storyline with the spaghetti and the not in this case but the sea lions and somebody actually does make spaghetti in my book too which i didn't even realize until i read the next draft there's spaghetti but um a character is given a, um, a red car by a person that she loved who died and it's kind of like an inheritance and it's a very mixed mixed gift because the red car is the car that she died in. And so this woman flies across the country and she picks up this car, which is in a, in a shop. It doesn't work, but it, it magically repairs itself. Like she just shows up one day and they're like, oh, the metal regenerated itself. And she's like, that's not possible. And the mechanic's like, no, it's not possible, but here's your car. But when she drives it, it, it has a kind of like a life of its own. Like some people compared it to Christine, which I hadn't had in mind, but uh, it's like the Stephen uh-huh. King. But it... 
the car other people drive it a friend of hers drives it in the book and it suddenly starts accelerating to going up like over 100 miles an hour on a highway where they're terrified and it's just it's a scary car to drive and so that was my homage to Murakami where this car wasn't like what a real car could be and I couldn't go quite as crazy I really want I was like how can I go f as far out as a Murakami book and, mm -hmm. and I couldn't because I'm just Marcy Dramansky <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of like that I like that it, it really is a book like it's it, you can recognize my style and it's actually has some autobiographical elements and so I like how they go together but mm -hmm. when I realized I couldn't take this book as far out as I intended to I figured out that wasn't a problem because it mm -hmm. wasn't going to feel natural to me yeah. So we're talking on Earth Day, yes. and it's very hot, it is. and there's a big climate march going on downtown, yes. and we're in a strange, <laughs> difficult political time. Okay. Um, so we were wondering, you know, especially for someone who's interested in more surreal literature, which yeah. is such a great vehicle for um, political satire and issues have you thought differently about writing fiction since the election i have and it's it's interesting because it feels like what is important enough to write about right now like the characters between lovers and relationship and families all of it seems so trivial and i mean one thing i wrote a short story just during the election before he won i never thought he'd won and i wrote it from the point of view of somebody who read about a tabloid where he called her a fat piglet when she was on a reality show oh, but wow. yeah i mean i feel like there's so many great dystopian books and i feel like we're living dystopia right now but i'm actually struggling to find out what i want to write because i feel like you can't just be oblivious to it right are, are there any books that you're reading right now besides obviously Murakami <laughs> no, um, are there any books that are speaking to you about that particular kind of moment that we're in I'm not I mean I'm really interested in reading Lydia Yukovich's new book which just came out this mm, week um, okay. The Ark of Joan I think I think she's here she okay. is here I want yeah yeah. I think, yeah because that is but she's like a prescient book because she wrote that you know three years ago and it's getting published now but I think it really reflects our time so I'm interested in that yeah um, can you talk a little bit about why you think that book is relevant? I, I think that book is, I mean, about, well, I haven't read it yet, but I, uh -huh. I just, from everything I read about it, it apparently mirrors what's going on right now. And I think and Lydia's just like such a personal, political writer. Like, she writes about the body, and that's really, you know, impressive and feminist and important. And I think right. people need to be talking about women's rights right now more than... I mean, it's one of the big issues, and also the environment. I mean, it's yeah. like pick an issue. You know what I mean? Like some people are animal rights. It's like all over the place. Like I feel bad that I'm not marching today, but I was at the tax march a couple weeks ago. Oh, that's <laughs> good. We're gonna right. have so many. I was at the women yeah, march with everybody, and there's gonna be. I mean, I hope we all just keep on, right? Keep on yeah. Marching. Yes. And reading books too. So. Does absolutely. reading help you? I mean, is that like something that gives you solace if you're feeling? bad yeah. you turn to literature I absolutely do I recently read another book that wasn't political at all and it was by Liz Moore and it's called Heft and it was her second novel and it was really about an obese man who's 600 pounds who literally never leaves his house and he hires like a maid to come clean his house mm -hmm. and it she just transforms his world and it was just so funny it was just a very personal domestic novel it had nothing political about it at all and I found it so absorbing and it was a 500 page book and I read it in three days I just stopped working because all I wanted to do was read this book wow so, yeah it was really good um, yeah. so what are you going to do while you're in Los Angeles um, it's funny I've, I've been tormented what am I gonna do really <laughs> I just came for the festival I arrived yesterday and I'm leaving on Sunday but I have all of tomorrow just to play so I don't know that's exciting yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to try to make it to maybe Venice Beach I don't know but I'm having fun at the festival 
So, and what is it like for you? You write this novel in six months. Yeah. And then how long did it take for you to get it published? It takes about a year and a half to get it published. Okay. Yeah, it's always like that. And then it even probably took about six months, like, going back and forth with my agent and making mm. changes. Like, the writing was sort of, like, the joy. And everything in the the run-up to it was just fine, you know what I mean, working with it there. But it, it takes a really long time for a book to and come And then out. in terms of promotion and promoting yeah. the book, like... How do you, I mean, it's something like at the Los Angeles uh, Festival of Books, yeah. LA Times Festival of Books. It's fun. I mean, my book came out in October, and I was mm-hmm. so grateful, by the way, that my book came out a month before the election. Yeah. Because I felt heartbroken for people whose books came out in January. I just felt like, how can you promote yeah. yourself? When, yeah. And in a way, it's such a pleasure when you're on Facebook and social media. There are just so many pictures of this horrendously ugly man that you want to root for somebody. You want to be like, hooray, you were reviewed in the New York Times. And so... I mean, in a way, my book has been out for six months, and maybe I'm not supposed to be talking about it anymore, but I really no. wanted to take a trip. So I turned the LA this festival into a trip for myself, you know, so that was smart. Good for you. Yeah. Very <laughs> smart. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, Marcy Dermansky, thank you so, so much for stopping by our booth and okay. for talking to us. Thanks, and I, lo- I love the LA Review books. I read it on my own, and I think it's a great resource. Thank you for Thank you me. so, so much. Okay. Have fun in L.A. All right, yeah, thanks. thank you, Marcy. Okay, that was Marcy Dermansky, author of The Red Car, from our interview with her at the L.A. Times Festival of Books. Now we'll listen to our interview with Dana Spiota, author of Innocence and Others, a novel. For the LARB Radio Hour, and I'm here with my co-hosts Medea Ocher and Eric Newman at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, and we're here with Dana Spiota, who is a return podcast LARB Radio interviewee. She's she's been on the show before, but different in different versions. And I'm so excited to have her back. Dana Spiota is a novelist based in upstate New York. She's the author of four novels, all published by Scribner, including Lightning Field from 2001. Eat the Document, which was a finalist for the 2006 National Book Award, Stone Arabia, which won a 2000, which was a 2011 National Book Critics Circle Award finalist in fiction, and most recently, Innocence and Others, a novel, which was published in 2016. She teaches in the MFA writing program at Syracuse University. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dana, for being here. So your newest novel is Innocence and Others. When did it came out? Late last year, or it came out uh, about a year ago. About a year ago. Right. Okay, so and how has that been kind of being with this book for a year and talking about it over the last year and has uh, the conversation changed at all? Yeah, it has. I mean, uh, you kind of, um, I did do a lot of traveling for this book and a lot of festivals and events and interviews and uh, and now it's coming out in more European countries, okay. so I'm doing it again, uh-huh. you know. Um, so you do, it's an interesting thing, you kind of get asked a lot of the same questions, not always, and you have a some answers that you kind of, it's nice to have answers that you've worked out, mm-hmm. but then you get really bored of those answers. <laughs> right. So you start changing them, and it, the weird thing is the change answers are also true. So what does that mean? Right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe that's an evolution, but also the other thing is when people are reading your book and responding, they notice things that you didn't notice. And sometimes they're, I mean, you're not always great at talking about your own book and somebody comes along and says something and then you're like, oh yeah, that's what I've been trying to say about it. I didn't notice that. So 
I'll start talking about that. Um, and I and I guess I think because it's a weird book, it's kind of hard to describe or you know, paraphrase. Uh, and a lot of times um, I'll pick a different way of describing it, but they are, but they're just a different aspect of the book. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how, how have you been um, paraphrasing it recently? Okay, I knew you were going to follow up with that. <laughs> right. I was like, oh we need God, it. We need I'm it setting this up. Uh, I, sometimes I just talk about it as, um, I kind of focus on the friendship between the two women and uh, and talk about it in terms of that, uh, and then but there's a whole part of the book that that excludes, which is this jelly character. So um, I think about getting le not as interested in talking about plot as much. I give like a sort of idea of okay, so there's a filmmaker and she makes a film about this woman and she kind of ruins her life. Like that would be the one sentence aspect of it. But um, but I'm more interested in this idea, thinking about. Um, trying to, to put my finger on what I if I think about what I thought the book was going to be about and then what it started to feel like it was about when I got to the end of the book that's a more interesting line of thinking and so when I started the book I thought it was going to be a, my impulse was to talk about seduction and confidence artists and con games and relationships of that between art I had this character who opens the book Meadow and she's talking and I was had this her talking and as I was writing it I realized she was lying so I thought well that's interesting and I had this idea that I wanted to write about Orson Welles and this idea that like a magic trick is more effective if the guy shows you how to do it that Orson Welles talks about in like Evis for Fake right mm -hmm. so I thought um, that is that's an interesting idea to think of as an artist is that really true if you know how something works is that an even deeper seduction like you say I'm about to seduce you and then I'll seduce you. So I had that idea, and then I had um, then I had this idea of, the, of jelly inspired by a real life person because all the stuff about catfishing had been in the news when I was writing, mm. beginning the book, and on the internet, people pretending to be other people, and that's always been an interest of mine when people pretend to be other people. Mm. Um, and I couldn't figure out what you would, why you would do that. So I, you know, was it for power or because it ends the same? The person wants to see you and you don't exist as you presented yourself. Well, it's always unsustainable, Unsustainable, right? yeah. yeah. So that was interesting to me too, like, well, you're really in it just for this brief period where you connect with this person under this false premise, but then it, it can't last, it can't be sustained. So, and then I, I started thinking, seeing how they connected. Have you ever pretended to be somebody else? No, I mean, writers pretend to be somebody else all sure. the time. So right. pretty much a full-time job. <laughs> right. And I, th I think I'm interested in that because it's, um, I do think it's an exaggeration of what we do all the time to function. We do have different parts of ourselves. And there's a part of Jelly where she's saying, she really, in order to be a good confidence artist, you have to kind of believe your con, right? Yeah. And she does believe that what she's describing when she pretends to be someone else on the telephone, not on the internet, because I put it back, is that she really believes that's the, that's the actual person that she is. That the body that she inhabits is not the real body of Jelly. Mm -hmm. So she's actually being more truthful. Now, of course, the other person doesn't know that she's doing this thing. So it's ethically com complex. So I got more interested in the ethics of both being a filmmaker and being a documentary filmmaker and presenting other people, confessing to other people 
what it does to other people when you hear somebody confess. And then this idea of, uh, and then one of the ways I realized that Jelly was seducing people was by just letting them confess to her, letting them talk to her. Um, and that interested me too, what it means when you tell somebody what you say, think is the truth. And in her weird way, she's doing a fair exchange. She's also telling her truth, but we don't look at it that way. We just see it as a lie. So that was interesting right. to me. And so I wrote to kind of feel what it would be like to do that. So that's, so, so yeah, I, I do relate to that kind of wanting to be somebody else, wanting to escape yourself. Who doesn't want to escape? And the older you get, the more you want to escape your body. <laughs> it sounds like you start, you start working, I mean, or in this case, you started working on something without having like plotted something out very deeply. So, no. so is that the way you work that you just kind of have these notions and things you want to explore, yeah. questions you want to ask, and then you don't really know what you're going to write? Yeah, I have questions I'm trying to figure out. If something I can't stop thinking about it and wondering about it, then that's a good thing to write about, write toward that. But um, I do try to figure it out. And this is now I know because I've written four that it's going to change a lot. But when I first started, I thought I knew. Right. And then I kept changing. So what, the way I work and I worked all four books this way is I read everything I've written before I add more. So I'll read and read and add. And while I'm reading, I'll revise. So I get a kind of density, backward writing. So I'm revising and writing new stuff at the same time. Does that make sense? Sure. But so let's say you wrote, let's say, so every day. Or, it I mean, used to be, okay. when I first book, it was every day, because I had a lot of inter Every time I would write, I'd read everything and then add to it. Um, wow. But now, it's when I get to an end of a scene. Okay. So when I get to the end of the scene, then I go back and I read the whole thing, try to have it all in my head before I figure out the next step. So, you, so it's this kind of, it's actually from, it's kind of what Gordon Lish used to say about, and many other people have said about, you know, going forward by looking backward. So it's sort of like what is there is going to tell you the next place to go. Sometimes you get stuck. And, and also, I think it's just a strategy for not having to face a blank page. Totally. If I go back, I write efficiently. Like I'm like, OK, I have to write the scene. What's the most efficient way I can do it? And then when I'm putting it in my computer, sometimes I write longhand, or when I'm reading it over once in the computer, I'll find pressure points to expand. So I'm one of the adder inners, gotcha. you know? Mm -hmm. So I write to kind of like, OK, this I think is going to happen, and I do it. And then I go back and, oh, this other weird stuff happens. So that's the way it kind of grows out in that way. And it gets a kind of, uh, you start to, and then when, I, when there's a lot of it, I start taking a lot of notes um, because you can't hold it all in your head about what you're noticing. And that's the best part because you've been working on it so long and you've been reading it so much that you start to connect things without you being conscious of them. And that's the really interesting stuff. Like that's the weird recursions that um, you can't impose from above. Right. Does that make of sense? Of course. Yeah, yeah. That's when you're tapping into the Yeah, and you're, you're, everything connection. is yielding for your, you become a, a machine of your book. You're reading the paper. You kind of go crazy, right? You're reading the paper like, oh, everyone is doing, is obsessed with the same thing I'm obsessed with. And right. you just keep getting ideas for your book. And then you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and you have ideas for your book. And that, but that to me, it takes a couple years of labor to get and work to get that density of, and so by the end of the book, when I got to the last section, which is Sarah alone in herself, everything in the book just kept coming back. Wow. Yeah. Wait. Imagery, language, just weird recursions just came in. Then, yeah. I mean, that sounds like a very intense writing yeah. process yeah, and this really kind of like really being immersed yeah. in like what you're doing which everyone is but this sounds particularly intense 
does it feel kind of mournful then when the book is over? Yeah, so what happens is that last year is really manic, like borderline unhealthy. Sounds great. (laughs) Like getting up really early and being um, obsessive to the point where I have to write Keep t- I have to like touch the book every day. Not okay. Either, you know, okay. Where <laughs> right. even if I'm traveling or whatever, I have to just get in, even if it's just messing with one sentence. Like it's almost superstitious. Like I can't stop touching it for that last year, and I just need to power down and give everything. And then after it's done, I feel um, and I feel like Superwoman when I'm doing it. It is kind of it's it, I think it's mania mania. Um, and like then I have high, a come yeah. down where I feel kind of exhausted for three months afterwards. Yeah. Now do you sounds... miss being with it, though? That's more what I mean. Like, do you miss afterwards being with I do, the novel that I do, because you, feel very, you feel like you have a purpose. You have a reason for, right, for the everything. Is, you know what you're doing. And right now, I'm in the beginning stages of a book, and I don't know what I'm doing. It's fun in a different way, because you have all freedom. And the end is stressful, because you have so little freedom. But you also, yeah, the, the momentum is so exciting, you know, and you miss mm-hmm. being immersed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the other thing, too, is, but I'm kind of, even after I've turned it in, even when it's in proofs, and even when it's in fourth pass, I still am editing. Oh, wow. Really changing. So at some point, it needs to, and, and then for the paperback, I'll change a couple things, too. So I get to that point where I know I have to stop because I'm, putting things in that I've taken out and mm-hmm. I'm just starting doing damage to it. Right. But I get that kind of, um, I'm making myself sound insane. <laughs> no, no you normal. sound okay. involved. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but that's the, a weird The creative thing. process yeah. is insane. Well, yeah. Yes. I'm wondering, level, right? like, and I think it yeah. has peaks and valleys. Like, yeah, yes. totally. You have yeah. to kind of pull all, you have to go at full throttle, but that's the cost of that. Like, it's an emotional downtime. life. You need a downtime. Yeah. You kind of, and I, I think it felt really good. I would say this: it feels emotionally I was drained, but it felt nice to not have a book for about six months, where I could read and I didn't have a, I didn't have to read for my book, and I could just do my thing. And, and it's good because you're editing, you're getting copy edits, and you don't want to be like, you know. But then you start feeling kind of um, depressed after that, and you have to get a new book going. Yeah, I think. That that, makes I mean, sense. I think a lot of writers yeah. feel that yeah. way. But I like having a little break in between until you feel like urgency again. Yeah. Having written about a con man. Say it again? Having written about a con man or a con artist. Right. Do you feel like you have uh, extra insight into our current administration? Yeah, I do. I I was thinking that too. Into our current administration. Yeah, you know, that upsets me because, I mean, among many things, I do feel that um, he's given such a... He's made lying into such an artless form that <laughs> just that there's no, it's just so naked and blatant and insistent. Right. And that's not really uh, what a confidence artist does. <laughs> that's just what you a tyrant does. You wish you were a better one. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, there's no seduction. He lies like a child, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah but, uh, but no, I think the, 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 the interesting thing is the fake news aspect of it. This idea, that seems interesting to me, that there's a, a kind of sense that you can insist on facts, right, mm-hmm. by saying it over and over again, and you get people to the state where they're very confused about what the truth is. And that is, a, that does, as a fiction writer, I can understand the power of that as a, as a uh, force of chaos, right? That, that, and it's interesting in fiction, it's not so interesting in real life to have people doing that. Yeah. Right. And you've, you've written about politics yeah. in the past and yeah. subversive counterculture yeah, in the 60s yeah. and mm-hmm. so do you see yourself is your new book that's brewing right now going in that 
in a political direction? Well, or? I feel I kind of think of all my books as being pretty political, right? Um, because, and I, and I've said this before, I think this part of this cultural moment is, and part of Trump as president comes out of the technology of this moment. Um, you know, he's like the giant swamp monster of the internet, and um, you know, we really sort of—I don't think it could have happened without these forces kind of being in place. So I think interrogating how uh, what shapes us is always interesting to me, and I also think that the form of the novel is countercultural, countercultural now because people—it's a deep, focused look at something. It's curated by one person. You can't move away from it. You're sort of you know, and, and creating that and reading that feels very different. And for me, and I'm sure you guys feel this way too, after the election, there was a couple of months where I was really, and actually before the election too, where I was really reading a lot of stuff online that was, you know, kind of scattered. And I was reading, I don't know, there's 20 op-eds a day or something, you know, trying to figure out what, what happened, what happened. And, uh, and then I started, you know, I teach, so I was teaching, going, teaching classes where I had to teach books and uh, it felt so good to be reading a novel yes, yeah. instead of reading short little t tweets, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and very shallow kind of horizontal stuff. I really wanted to be focused deep, not as escape, but just as like a, um, a, a, a sort of recalibration of, uh, and, I, and I think that, um, that that depth is part of the problem, is that we're kind of, there's a kind of uh, lack of complexity and uh, and also the velocity of how quickly people you know decide and move on things that the novel feels counter to too. So I think it's subversive actually as a form right now. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Totally. Yeah, I think after the election, I had a very similar reaction and was really drawn to like Hardy. Yeah, like Thomas Hardy and yeah. Brontes and right. Jane Austen because it gives you this. I, it, I think it's really difficult for humans to experience deep time. I mean, maybe yeah, like deep in, time in right. nature or right. something. But um, I think, but we uh, books, but that kind, novels, kind of allow you to do that. Yeah, right? that yeah. it feels somehow things begin to feel thicker or and I deeper. Think calling yeah. that escapism is reductive. You yeah, know? that's it's not. It's expansive. It's expansive. Actually, it's expansive. Yeah. Right. It's and a it's, way to expand your mind. Yeah, and it reminds you of who you are. And sometimes you feel annihilated by if you spend a lot of time reading stuff. And I don't mean to say the internet, but if you spend a lot of time reading things that somebody took five seconds to write, yeah. it annihilates your soul. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. It, it can. It really can. And you're like, I want to read a sentence that somebody worked hard on. Yeah. Some poetry. Yeah, definitely. Or a short story. Or it's, a novel. It does feel fulfilling in a very different way. Yes. And in it this, really does. And this book also does address technology a lot, yes, right? Yes, like yes. the film sort of obsessed, and yeah. the you know, landlines. Yeah. And, yeah. and the way that technology is both something that can make us feel closer together, create intimacy beyond, you know, that you can connect with someone who's not with you, but also is a way of kind of keeping us from one. I mean, it does both. It has most interesting things that, I, that, that you want to write about have a kind of bothness to them, right? Mm -hmm. A paradox, like that's what Kundera says, all fiction is built on paradox. Yeah. Technology is the most amazing paradoxes embedded within it. Totally. What it gives us and what it takes away at the same time and how we can't resist it. I mean, you know, we take these objects that we embrace them and they change us and we haven't figured out how they're changing us until they're already 
totally embedded in our lives. And so I'm not a Luddite. I love technology, but I'm very, like, I need to think about it and write about it and interrogate it, right? Yeah. It's vexing, yeah. But, yeah. But fascinating, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't you think, though, that, the, I mean, it's the speed of how we're using technology is... is beyond our ability to kind of grasp how it shapes us. For instance, with the robots and, you know, mechanization of lots of jobs, let's say, that maybe people would want. People talk about it as though it's kind of like a fait accompli, like we can't, you know, that's, they're just going to be robots doing menial labor. I mean, what can you do? Right. But it's kind of like, who's creating that? Human beings are creating. Yeah. So, so the, yeah, it does seem that has this Pandora's box element where it's just. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always been, I mean, like the, when I was writing a Stone Arabia, I was, you know, one of the characters is obsessed with this Amish thing that woman she sees on TV and she goes and meets her and I was thinking you know I was doing all this research about Amish people and I love this idea that it's not that they're anti-technology but it's sort of like okay we're going to try this technology we'll try a cell phone and if it takes us if it increases vanity which means takes you away from God then we won't use it but we're going to try it and see like oh yeah by the way this is not you know but we'll <laughs> use this or we'll use that and I and I like that idea of it it's like you have this kind of skeptical approach and I, I, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I like the idea of, does it increase vanity? <laughs> well, is it going to make yeah. me more of a narcissist? Well, yes or no? Because well, what you're doing there, right, is you're taking the beat to, like, think, how is this impacting me? Yeah. Right? You're not providing a moral framework to it yeah. in the same religious way. Yeah. But you're saying, like, wait, so how does this transform me instead of the race that we always have with technology yes. into, like, how can this like make things faster? Make like things all faster. this external like, that's an stuff. Ultimate yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. I agree. And 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 you have as to if say, the fast should be preferable in all cases. Yeah. And that's why I think the slow idea, like the slow read, slow food, all the slow stuff, is so exciting to people and to younger people. Like my daughter, the kind like my daughter's totally obsessed with slime right now. If you have a adolescent girl in America anywhere, she will be making slime. What like is Nickelodeon slime? slime? Yeah, like slime. Like you take oh, borax. Okay, okay, okay. And, and, the, and the boys, I, th- I think they do this thing with wood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they, um, you have to, what is going on? That's uh, the, so I think those are handmaidens. Right now these are handmaidens. handmaidens. There are handmaidens yeah. for Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale I, walking I, by us. But um, so, the, so the slime thing is a big fad. And if you walk into any store, you'll see borax and glue. That's what they mix them together and they make slime and they put sparkles in it. Why? All, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fad. You remember like when you were a kid, there's no. a fad? And I think it's, but it's very analog. And they just go around Ugh. squishing slime. The girls come over and they all squish slime. Look it up on the, it's like a thing. Wow, I gotta check yeah. this out. There's whole Instagrams about it. Of course, it's a, it's an analog thing that they then put on Instagram. Right, exactly. Right. As, so the well, Oh, so you just ruined yeah. this like nice arc that yeah. I'm seeing this like a return to yeah. the tactile. And then now you're like, oh, but it's also shareable. Yeah, <laughs> everything is shareable. Right. No, yeah. but, but the Instagram viewers will never feel it. Right, I know, and then what the point see, of slime what is see is they'll be inspired to make their own slime. Well, that's nice. How did you make that slime? Because it looks so tactile. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely place to end this yeah. conversation <laughs> on slime. Thank you so much, Dana Spiotta, <laughs> for being for here. Me. Dana Spiotta's <laughs> new or newish novel is Innocence and Others. Special thanks to William Broden for his help recording all of these interviews live at the LA Times Festival of Books 
He did an amazing job. Thank you, William. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 